Hello and a very warm welcome to the Vegas Nerve Masterclass. I'm so happy to hear, see, have so many of you here. We've got lots of people signing in to our masterclass. So a very warm welcome. Just so I know that you can hear me okay, if you could type a Y into the chat box, that would be really helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You guys are really helpful. And also, I love to hear from you first of all. So if you feel comfortable, I'd love to know where it is that you're tuning in from, um, because it's always nice to see. We usually get people from all around the world jumping on the call. So we've got Boulder, Colorado, Adelaide, Sydney, Connecticut, Panama, Seattle, Vancouver, that's flying by, I'm trying to keep up, Indonesia, Melbourne, Canada, Sydney, Canada again, Auckland, Colorado Springs, Pennsylvania, Ireland, Philadelphia, Oakland. Oh, very exciting to have such a broad audience. Gold Coast, nice and close to me. So I'm in the in the northern part of New South Wales, Australia, and I'm I'm so happy to have such a broad range of people on today that um, yeah, to make up our call. And I'd also love to hear what is it that you'd love to walk away from this masterclass knowing so that I can really make the masterclass as specific to answering your questions. What is it that you would like to leave the masterclass knowing more about? So maybe that's for yourself or for the things that help the people that you work with. So we've got best tool to prevent or reduce anxiety, regulate my nervous system to help with chronic pain, how to regulate my nervous system, self-regulation to move out of freeze. Great. We've got lots of good questions. The breath in the nervous system, self-soothing, calming my system, help with anxiety, help my clients, a toolkit, self-regulation. So, so far, the main thing we've got is self-regulation, help children and young people, less reactive, how to be in my body and more present, to stay present, to heal the gut, understanding the vagus role in autoimmune system, healing the gut, chronic stress and the nervous system, tools for clients who experience anxiety. Okay, so all of those somebody has said, and that's that's exactly what we're going to be covering. Um, you will leave the masterclass with a sequence of trauma-sensitive self-regulation tools that can help to improve both your physical, your psychological health, and also improve relationships, which is wonderful. Um, we'll go through when to use what tool when. So a lot of people say, what's the number one practice that helps with regulating the nervous system? And there isn't one. It's really about knowing what tool to use that attunes to your nervous system. So we're going, going to go through that. Um, and yes, lots on burnout as well that I can see too. So we'll look at that. And 
We'll have time for questions at the end. Um, I just have a favour to ask. I get a little bit distracted and I find other people on the call get distracted when there's lots of questions coming in throughout the presentation. So if you're able to write your questions down somewhere and ask them at the end, I'd be so grateful. And also just to keep in mind that I can't give medical advice. So I can't answer a question that's about, I have such and such, what can I do? It's really about, I can give you questions relating to the education that we're teaching. So if you frame it that way, then I can certainly answer. Okay, so let's move into sharing my screen so that then we can have a little look at the presentation. I'm just gonna move out of that. We're gonna go over here. And we're gonna pop into our slideshow for the masterclass. So here we are. So my name's Jessica Maguire, just to introduce myself to you. And I'm a trauma-informed integrative physiotherapist. So I help people specifically with the vagus nerve and to help to regulate what's known as the autonomic nervous system. What you'll be learning today has helped thousands of people recover from chronic and traumatic stress, and you can have a big impact in reshaping how your nervous system has responded to the, the things that have happened in your past, and that's what we're going to be doing today. So after working as a private practice physiotherapist one-on-one -on -one with people, I really wanted to get to know why people had more pain when they were going through an emotional time and especially people with a trauma of history, a history of trauma, sorry, or why they had gut issues, why they had insomnia. So I was beginning to see a picture and I closed my own clinic and spent two years researching this um, from many parts of the world. And that's why I'm, I'm being so thankful to be able to create this Vegas Nerve Masterclass, which has brought some really profound changes to a lot of people's lives. So just a few logistics to help us get through today. Um, we'll have informative teaching and interact, interactive exercises. So there'll be regulation tools as we go through the masterclass. Um, as I said, the Q&A is at the end. If you're happy to hold your questions to, that, to the end, that would help me a lot and help other people. Um, and also just to re reiterate, I can't give you medical advice on that. Whilst this work can be very therapeutic and healing, it's not a replacement for therapy. So if you're in therapy at the moment, then I encourage you to continue with that and what you learn today is going to be a wonderful adjunct to that. So it'll be a nice add-on. I invite you just to honour your body and your nervous system. So if anything feels like it's too much, then you can just take a break, come back to it. Because you're going to be receiving an email with video tutor with a tutorial that will take you through all the exercises as well as guided audios, it's okay if you don't take everything in today as you practice. 
And if you start to feel dysregulated or overwhelmed by sensations as you practice, you can take a break and you can also use co-regulation, which is practicing these tools with somebody that you feel safe, connected and grounded around. So you're utilizing their nervous system to help regulate your own. So let's have a look at the anatomy of the vagus nerve. Now, we know that it starts at the brain stem. So if you placed your hand on the back of the neck where the skull and your neck meet, there's a bony ridge there that you can kind of feel. The brain stem is underneath that. And so a lot of our bodily functions that happen outside of our conscious awareness happen here. And this is why for a lot of the uh, responses that we have from trauma, it's not psychological. It's not our thinking. These are physiological responses. And it's the vagus nerve that's communicating these. So it starts in the brainstem. It comes down through the side of the neck. So you can see these yellow branches on the sides here. And it comes down into the heart. So we know it has a big effect on the heart and it also comes into the lungs. So lots of information there too. And then we also have what's known as subdiaphragmatic parts, which just means if this is the diaphragm, underneath the diaphragm, there are branches that come down and have a big effect on our gut. So when we look at that size, it's actually comparable to the spinal cord. And if you can have a little picture in your mind of where it's traveling to, you get to know its function and the way that it can affect our physiology as we move between the different states of our nervous system. So this is just another picture to give you an idea, looking at the, that's starting off in the brainstem. It has branches going to the face as well, connecting with other cranial nerves, down into the neck, down to the lungs, the heart. And you can see that it touches almost every organ on its way. And this is how it gets the name vagus because vagus in Latin means wanderer. Because it wanders and travels over so much of the body, when it comes to stress, this is the most important nerve in the body because of what it does, not just to the brain, but also because of the effect that it has on all these different organs. But as you'll discover today, on all systems, so the immune system, the endocrine system, which is our hormonal system, but also it has a flow-on effect to our musculoskeletal system, which is our muscles and our bones and our joints. It has an effect, such a strong effect on the cardiorespiratory system and also the digestive. So we know back in the early 1800s, Charles Darwin was aware of this two-way connection that he called the pneumogastric nerve. And he could see what was happening to the brain affected the heart and what was happening in the heart affected the brain. So he wasn't aware of that connection with the gut. 
but the specific anatomy I've popped there if you want to have a little read of that, depending on what your background is and what you want to get out of today. So why is the vagus nerve so important? Well, as we've just seen from that picture, it really is the epicenter of the mind-body connection. And often we think of that as some kind of new age concept, this mind-body connection. But we can see that what's happening in the body and the organs is reflected in our psychological health. So, for example, how the gut microbiome now is being shown to be involved in our mental health and also what's happening in uh, the brain is affecting our organ health as well. So we used to think of the brain as like this commander or the one that was overseeing everything, but what's happening in both the body and the brain are equally important and they communicate by this two-way connectivity via the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve controls our autonomic nervous system. And this is how we respond to danger and to threat. And it's always acting in service of our survival. So it's always trying to keep us safe. Now, a healthy nervous system is not always calm. So I don't think it's a healthy expectation to expect ourselves to always be calm. What we want is a flexible and resilient nervous system that responds appropriately to what's happening in front of us. And that's what the vagus nerve does. And this is why it's a key to our emotional health. So, for example, if somebody was overstepping a boundary, you would feel those sensations of or the activation of anger through the body, and that would lead you to set a boundary and say, no, this isn't actually okay. That's a healthy response. So we want our nervous system to match that. For some people, if that experience was happening, they might go into freeze and not be able to set a boundary and get stuck in that pattern. So what we're looking at is learning to have this flexible, adaptable and resilient system. So the vagus nerve is the communicator between the heart and the brain and the, and the gut and the brain. So most of the fibers are running from the body up to the brain. So we have 80% of the vagus nerve fibers sending what's called sensory information up to the brain. The brain takes this information in and then it changes how the vagus nerve affects the 20% of the fibers that come down, as we saw, to the heart, to the lungs, to the gut. So it's an important role that sensory information plays, a the stuff coming up plays an important role in how we make decisions, our mood, our emotions. And then that information changes what's coming down in the body. So it's almost like a big loop that keeps going on. When the vagus is working well, we know that it has an anti-inflammatory role. So it reduces inflammation. The body can come back to the stage where rest and rejuvenation and repair happen when the vagus nerve is working well. 
So when we have chronic health issues, we can have a positive influence on those. So it can reduce things like chronic pain, where we know that there can be a lot of inflammation. It can help improve the gut functioning, where we know that inflammation can be there and sensitivities. And it can also improve the functioning of our immune system, which helps with things like autoimmune conditions too. So very, really, really important stuff here that the vagus nerve is, is having its effect on us. And as I said, bottom-up processing. So 80 to 90% of the fibres are carrying information up to the body. Sorry, from the body to the brain. And this is via the enteric nervous system, which is our gut or the rich neural network inside the gastrointestinal system. It's bringing information up from the heart to the brain, particularly to do with the beats of our heart, what we call heart rate variability. We also know the information about our breath comes up into the brainstem. So we call this respiratory sinus arrhythmia. And we're really looking at the amount of stretch that comes into the lungs, which has an effect coming up to the brain, which can then help to regulate the system. Our posture really affects the vagus nerve and the way that it sends that information up. And so does our facial expression and the way that we're connecting with other people. So bottom-up regulation is really important for what we call the survival brain. This is an area lower down in the, in the actual brain. And it's we the survival brain communicates with us by releasing neurotransmitters and hormones that create sensations in our body. So let's say, for instance, you were driving along and you came around a corner and there was a car accident in front of you. You would feel that sudden surge of adrenaline and you might slam the brakes on. So you haven't even had the thought of, oh, put the brakes on. There's a reflexive action that's done that. And so what we're seeing is that when we can work with this survival part of the brain following chronic and traumatic stress, we can help to re-regulate our nervous system. So we're going to use all of these tools today to help speak the language of the survival brain because it doesn't communicate with us through thoughts or stories that happens in the thinking brain or more in the cortex and the outer part of our brain. We need to come into the body and communicate with it through bottom-up processing or bottom-up regulation. So as I said, posture is one of the things that impacts our nervous system a lot. And that's because posture shifts influence blood pressure receptors, which are known as baroreceptors. So they detect what's happening inside the blood vessels and they send signals to the brainstem, that lower part of the brain, to either increase or inhibit the vagus nerve. So this is how we can work with our body to influence what's happening in our nervous system. One of the best things you can also do is check in with your 
posture um, and your nervous system and shift to enhance it several times per day, particularly if you find you're working like this a lot of the day with tension. And as just a little bit of an experiment, you might try to bring your body into a posture that you would have if you were quite tense. So if you were to shrug your shoulders up, clench your jaw and make your hands into fists, just notice what happens. So is it possible for you to feel relaxed when your posture's like this? So for me, I feel a surge or an increase of nervousness and it's making me want to talk faster. So for me, I can't get into a state where I feel relaxed by being in this posture. Okay, let's shake that off. Let the shoulders drop. Shake the hands out. We'll release some of that activation. But that's just to give you an idea of how quickly posture can influence our nervous system. Let's roll the shoulders a few times. And what we're going to do for our practices today, and I invite you to do this for all of your practices so that you can become a scientist of your own nervous system and get to know what practices work best for you. So if you were to tune into your mind and your body right now, just notice how you feel. So if we were to look at your mind, either right now or what it's been like prior to this, on a scale of one to 10, where one is slow thoughts, you're having trouble focusing, you might feel spacey and vague, and 10 would be racing thoughts, where your thoughts are jumping one to the other and you're finding it hard to focus because you're drifting off into worrying about things. And let's say five was the optimal state where you were alert but also relaxed. You could concentrate. You could be present with what's happening most of the time. So on a piece of paper, I'm just going to invite you to write down the score for the baseline of your mind. And then moving into looking at the baseline of your body. So if we're looking at your body's energy level from a scale of one to 10. So one is extreme exhaustion and fatigue. And 10 represents extreme restlessness, hyperactivity, and an inability to sit still. So you might find that you can't sit down or you're bouncing your knee, but let's say five was in the middle. So you feel alert, but you also feel relaxed. Where would you be on that scale of your body? So let's say you've written down somewhere on that piece of paper, the baseline of your mind and the baseline of your body. And so for our first practice, it's going to help us really land and be ready to take in all this wonderful information. We're going to use a bottom-up regulation tool. So if you're closer to a one, 
I'm going to invite you to gently push with your contact points when we come to talking about them to upregulate your nervous system. And if you're closer to a 10, I'm going to invite you to try relaxing the contact points to downregulate. So that would mean, if I just get a little pen here, if you were up here and you had more 10 scores, you're going to relax your contact points and bring yourself back down or downregulate to the middle. But if you're closer to the one, then you're going to add energy by pushing with your contact points and bring that back up. So you're going to up-regulate your nervous system. It will make sense when we get to the next part. And as we focus on a contact point, we bring our survival brain into a more balanced state, this part of the brain specifically called the amygdala. So the survival brain is are the lower parts down here where we said that it doesn't communicate with us through thinking. It communicates with us through releasing neurotransmitters and hormones that create sensations. Now, this is the, an older part of our brain. So what was more recently evolved is this outer part here, the top part with the squiggly part, which we call the thinking brain. And as the name suggests, it communicates with us through thoughts and stories. Um, so what we know is that this area here called our prefrontal cortex can actually calm down the amygdala. It can add some down regulation, a little bit like a parent would to a child. And that's what we're going to do with this practice. So we're using a bottom-up tool where we work in the body and we're focusing our attention and this will really help to re-regulate our nervous system. So if you can come into a position where you'll be comfortable for the next 10 minutes or so, that would be great. It's helpful if you're sitting in a chair and one that has back support. So if you need to take a minute to move into a comfortable position, then please do so. But if you're sitting on your bed or on the floor, you might just move into a position so that your back is resting against the wall for this part. But a chair is good if you can move into that position. And just sitting with your legs uncrossed. Taking this time to adjust. And you can choose if you want to do this practice with your eyes open or closed. But if your eyes are open, you might just like to soften the gaze and look down a little bit so that your awareness can travel inwards. Okay, so we're going to start off by bringing the attention to the feet. So the bottom surface of your feet, the skin there, and feeling the sensations on the skin, 
of the bottom surface of your feet. So you might notice the material of a sock or a shoe. Just see how much of that sensory information you can take in. You might notice areas of pressure or numbness, warmth or coolness. Just being curious about what sensations you can notice on the bottom surface of your feet. Maybe you notice the floor, carpet, a rug. And if your mind wanders off, that's okay. Just coming back with a friendly attention, noticing the sensations on the bottom surface of your feet. And so if your baseline was closer to a 10, the invitation is just to soften and relax the feet. Just letting them relax into the floor and continuing to notice the sensations. If you were closer to a one out of 10 with your baseline, to upregulate your nervous system, see if you could just gently add a little bit of pressure into the floor, just about 5%. So you're adding a little push there and noticing sensations at the same time. So you're either upregulating or downregulating your nervous system as you pay attention to the contact of your foot on the floor. And then we're going to move the attention to another contact point. So noticing your legs or the back of your legs in contact with the chair. You might notice your sit bones also in contact with this area. Just feeling the legs and the sit bones on the seat of the chair. And see what sensations you can take in on the skin of these contact points. So it might be material like your clothing. It might be the pressure from the chair. 
you might notice if one side has more pressure than the other side. Just being curious about what sensory information you can take in. In the back of the legs and the sit bones. So if you were closer to a 10 with your baseline, you might see if it's possible to get a sense of the chair supporting you. You could just relax into the chair a little bit. Returning to those sensations of the contact points, if your mind drifts off, just that sensory information on the back of the legs and the sit bones. If you were closer to a one out of 10 with your baseline, Maybe you feel, find it hard to feel the legs or the pelvis or to connect to this area. Might very, very softly add a little bit of pressure with the backs of your legs to the chair. Or you may even pop your hands on your legs and rub them a little bit to help you connect to them. And then return to paying attention to the contact point of the back of the legs and the sit bones touching the chair. And then we direct our attention to a new contact point so feeling the contact of your spine now on the back of the chair. So you might notice the feeling of pressure on that area of your spine that touches your chair. And you might also take in information on the vertebrae that aren't and feel maybe material of your clothing resting against those vertebrae. But just seeing how much information you could take in of the contact point of your spine touching the back of your chair or the wall Just being curious about what you notice, how much detail you can notice. And again, if you were closer to a 10 with the baseline of your mind and body, you might notice what happens as you relax back into the chair, as though you could feel the chair supporting you Continuing 
to notice the contact points of your vertebrae against the chair. And if you were closer to a one out of 10, keeping a little bit of length through the spine, so staying tall, and just adding a little bit of pressure into the back of the chair, just to upregulate that information coming in for you to pay attention. And if your mind wanders off into stories or thoughts or you get distracted, that's okay. That's just what minds do. So returning back to the contact point when you're ready. There's no need for any judgment if you find your attention drifts. And then noticing the next contact point, which is our last one of your hands. So it might be the hands touching each other, the surface of the skin of one hand touching the other, or it might be the hands touching your lap. Just taking in whatever sensory information is on the skin of the hands. So there might be areas that feel warm or cold, where there's pressure, there might be numbness. might be touching clothing, just being curious about what you can feel on the skin of the hands. And if you were closer to a 10 with your baseline, you might downregulate the nervous system by softening the hands as you pay attention to those contact points. If you were closer to a one, you might add a little bit of pressure of one hand into the other or a little bit of pressure of the hands into your legs and then noticing the contact points of the hands touching each other or the lap. And then being curious about how this practice may have changed your nervous system. So if you were to take the baseline of your mind now, where one is feeling very spacey and vague and it's hard for you to stay present, and 10 was racing thoughts, jumping from one to the next. And five was being able to 
Stay mostly present, even if your mind drifts off somewhat. Where would you be with the baseline of your mind? And you might like to write that down now, comparing it to the start of the practice. And then tuning into your body. What would the baseline of your body be like now? So one was feeling very lethargic, flat, exhausted, fatigued. And 10 was feeling hyperactive, restless, agitated, unable to sit still. What would the baseline of your body be? And you might like to write that down. And if you feel comfortable, I'd invite you to share your pre and post scores in the chat box just to see with a little bit of curiosity how that changed for people. So what was your score prior to this of the mind and body and what was your score after doing this practice with the base with the baseline of the mind and body? So feel free to type that in to the chat box and we'll see what we got. So I went from about three to four on both counts. Great. Three went to five in mind, three up to four in body. My scores didn't change. I dozed off during the exercise. Uh, two to a four, eight to a seven, eight to a seven, six prior, four or five after practice, baseline seven, three, eight to six, seven to five for the mind, and then two to four for the body, seven and three in mind. Okay. So if it didn't change much, most people's definitely did. They either went from around an eight to a five or a seven to a five or the other, other time, three up. So if you notice that you had the baseline of the mind was, say, racing, so you were up around, say, with the mind around a seven, but the body was flash. The idea is that you work with what the score of your body is. So the mind will start to come back closer to a five as you focus. But if your body feels really flat, then as you add energy, that will come back up. Now, if you were already at a five, you may find that this wasn't a big change and that's okay. The idea is that you would then try it when you were closer to an eight or say a two. Okay. So it's, it, you have the recording of these practices and you can try them and I've split them up. So the sympathetic practice, which you'll, you'll learn about today is when you're closer to a 10 and then the dorsal practice is when you're closer to a one. So thank you for sharing. It's amazing to see that that many people got such big changes. Um, but as I said, if you found that the mind and body were different, it's going to make sense as we go through this and look at blended states. All right. So in your video tutorial, um, we also have some with posture that you can combine with the massage that can be right, quite helpful too. So looking at vagal tone, just like a muscle, when the vagus nerve is working well, we say that it has good tone. 
and we call it vagal tone. It's a key biological correlate of psychological well-being, and it's especially important in our ability to bounce back after stress. So this is what helps us when we face demands to allow a little bit more energy into our system. So for example, if you were going for a job interview and you wanted to be focused, you wanted to have your attention stay in the moment, that would be how we'd release a little bit more energy into our system. So then afterwards, we'd be able to recover back from that activation via the vagus nerve, particularly what we call the vagal break, which we're going to cover. Now, signs of low vagal tone, it's normally a cluster of these, okay? So it's not just having one, it's normally having a few of these symptoms. So it's prolonged anxiety, fear, emotional overwhelm, or having difficulty switching off, feeling, having prolonged depression, feeling stuck, flat, or lacking motivation. Now, people can swing between those two states as well. Um, digestive issues like irritable bowel syndrome, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, pain, constipation, or bloating. It can be chronic pain, aches, or muscle tension, autoimmune issues such as rheumatoid arthritis, insomnia, long-term fatigue, and chronic inflammation. So how does this come about wrong? Stress puts the nervous system into overdrive and it searches for danger by signals it receives from the vagus nerve. And we have changes in what's known as neuroception, interoception, and exteroception. And don't worry if you've never heard of those words before, we're going to talk about those today. Now, following periods of chronic traumatic stress, our nervous system begins to think that this danger zone where our where our survival responses are on is the norm. That's the state. So it's a little bit like changing the thermostat. Let's say I set my thermostat for around about 24 degrees Celsius when it's um, cold in winter. So the heater pumps all year round. And then let's say I, ch I don't change that in summer and it's, it's too hot. So we're looking at the thermostat can change from always being with our survival responses turned on. And so we don't go back to the zone where rest, rejuvenation, repair, and healthy digestion can happen. When we look at what trauma is, it's where the system stays with feeling like it needs to be on alert. So let's say an event happened that was highly stressful for us. The nervous system didn't get to return back to that baseline. So let's say the temperature went from 24 up to 30 degrees and it hasn't come back down now to 24 degrees. And it's not just a one-time situation like an accident. It can be chronic stress where we feel helpless or powerless and so we see this through 
from 2020 with for a lot of people with COVID. It was a feeling of helplessness and it was chronic as well. So stress and trauma aren't just psychological, they're physiological. This means they change the way our systems are working and we can't outthink our way to recover from it. We can't just talk about what's happened and feel that it's going to change our state back to how it was if we have dysregulation. And a lot of this that we look at, we'll be looking at changes that we can have with the immune system, hormonal system, digestive system too. But particularly, it's the vagus nerve that changes. And how do we assess the vagus nerve? So we can look at what's known as heart rate variability, as this is measuring how the vagus nerve is relaxing and how it's engaging so that we have enough uh, energy or that we can calm back down again. When heart rate variability is low, we can have more dysregulation and it takes us longer to recover from a stressful situation. So if we have a little look at this picture on the left, we're looking at the heart beats through what's known as an ECG or an electrocardiogram. So those red lines down the bottom, they are the beats, if we have a look through here. So from this section here to here, you can see that those beats are getting closer together, those red lines. And that's what happens when we breathe in. So there's actually a, re a release of the vagus nerve. Now, we're looking at the part of the vagus nerve that runs from the brainstem down to our heart's pacemaker. And that has been called the vagal brake, like a bicycle brake. So if you imagine that you were riding downhill on a bicycle, so that you didn't go too fast, you would keep a little bit of the vagal brake on. And that's what happens for us. So the vagus nerve is always on just a little bit to our heart, just to keep it slowed down a fraction. When we want to deal with something that's stressful, we can relax the vagal brake just a little bit to meet demands. And so my system has more energy. It has more focus. It's ready to take on a challenge. And then after that stressful period's over, I would re-engage the, the brake on the bicycle and I would slow back down to the correct speed. So when we breathe in, we actually have a little bit of a release or a relaxation on the vagal brake doesn't come off completely, but just a little bit. And then as we exhale, we know that the vagal break engages. So what happens when we exhale is that the heart actually beats a little bit slower. So that would be this section here. And you can see that those beats are further apart. So this blue line is tracking the beats. You can see it increases as the heart beats faster. And so it goes up. And then it comes back down as the heart beats slower when we breathe out. And we call the variability 
that, that, that change in that curve, heart rate variability. And so we get a bigger wave when that's there. And so we want to see that because that means that the vagal break is working well. It's relaxing, it's re-engaging, relaxing, re-engaging. What can happen after chronic and traumatic stress is that the vagal break is so used to being relaxed that it's off a lot of the time. And so what that means is when I come into meeting a demand, if my vagal break is already off a little bit, it means I might release that completely and then I move into fight or flight anytime that I need to face a challenge. And so then I'm in the state where I'm anxious, agitated, can't sit still, my heart's going fast, I might feel a sense of panic. So what we're learning to do is to cultivate a healthy vagal break. So this person here, we could say their break was already off a little bit because the variability between the in-breath and the out-breath is very small. If we compare the size of that to this person here, whose in-breath and out-breath is much larger. So we see that first pattern up here comes about from chronic or traumatic stress due to those physiological changes of what's happening to the vagus nerve. But if I can learn to bring my break in a little bit, it means that I will change that thermostat that we were talking about so that I can let energy out to meet demands and I can put the brakes back on. That's what having a flexible, resilient nervous system is. And that return to regulation after something stressful has happened, that's the essence of resilience and what we're learning to do with this work. So lower heart rate variability will mean that we move into fight, flight, freeze quicker because the break is already off a little bit and it takes us longer to recover because that break coming back on, it's not engaged quite as well. But if we have a higher heart rate variability, we can have more flexibility and adaptability. And that's all about the vagal break. Now, the way that we can improve our vagal break is really by recheck. I'm just going to, you can read these questions later, but I'm just going to skip to this. The way that we retune the vagal break is really by using the breath. So when we use breathing called one-to-one -one breathing, we can actually retune our nervous system and bring it into a balanced state. So slowing the breath down, it creates a stretch effect in the lungs. And that stretch effect sends a message up to the brainstem. So by doing that, we actually make the vagal break work again. So think of this as a loop, as a loop where the, the lungs are stretching, the, the brainstem where the vagus nerve starts receives that information and it makes the vagal break come on a little bit. So we're going to start with practicing one-to-one -one breathing. And 
one to two breathing you'll have the recording of so you can practice that. Now, whether you were closer to a baseline of a one or closer to a baseline of a 10, my suggestion is that you start with one-to-one -one breathing. If you're closer to a 10 and you find the one-to-one -one breathing doesn't give you the sense of regulation or calmness or ease, then you can try one-to-two breathing. Because as we do a longer exhalation, we're having more time for the vagal break to come on, which can slow us down. If you were closer to a one out of 10 with your baseline at the start and you were more on that flat side, one to two breathing might be too um, much for you and you might start to feel more sleepy. So what I'd suggest that you try as a, as a little bit of an enhancer is try standing up when you do your one-to-one -one breathing because you'll upregulate your nervous system, giving more energy, and the one-to-one -one breathing will help to balance that. Okay, so the breathing rate that studies have shown that works quite well is around about 5 to 5.5 breaths per minute with equal inhalation to exhalation. That's been shown to increase heart rate variability the most. But the key is you want to build this up slowly so that there's no tension in the body. So sometimes what happens is if you have a little look at my neck, people do these practices and they take big deep breaths in and you can see these muscles activating here. So these are called sternocleidomastoid and the vagus nerve has branches running through there. But when they activate, They'll activate around the brainstem too on, in the skull and that can increase your, our stress response. So when you do these practices, build up slowly so that you can stay relaxed through the muscles in the neck, the shoulders, the chest and the belly. And I'll talk you through how to do that as we practice. Okay, so I'll invite you to come into the posture that we set up for the contact points exercises where you can be both alert and relaxed. And I'll just give you a minute to adjust. And once again, you can choose to do this with your eyes open or closed. It's just helpful if you can soften the gaze to look down so that your awareness can go inward to the body. And we're going to start off with just letting the body breathe on its own. So see if you can just let your body breathe on its own. You might take a quick baseline of your mind and a baseline of your body just to see how this practice changes your nervous system. And then bringing the awareness to where you feel the breath 
the most or the easiest. So it might be at the nostrils. It might be at the back of the throat. It might be the chest. Or it might be the belly. So just noticing how the breath is. And without trying to change it, is it possible for you to count how long the in-breath is? So how many counts does it take for you to breathe in? And then just noticing the out breath. How many counts does it take for you to breathe out? And just being curious, so noticing what part is longer And then see if you could allow the breath just to lengthen. So you might lengthen both the in-breath and out-breath by one count into a rhythm that's easy and comfortable. So seeing if you could stay soft through the neck, shoulders, chest and belly. And then lengthening whichever part of your breath was the shortest by one count. And if that feels comfortable, see if you could move into the breath cycle where the breath in and out were even. Just re-relaxing in the body if you need to. So softening the neck, the shoulders and the chest.
See if you could have a breath pattern that's maybe around four seconds in and four seconds out. But there's no need to count if that doesn't feel comfortable. So being curious now, as you come into the one-to-one -one pattern, how does this change the baseline of the mind and the baseline of the body? Just being curious about how this practice is influencing your nervous system at the moment. If you feel sleepy, flat, fatigued, you could continue this practice standing up. If you feel anxious, agitated, restless, you might lengthen the exhalation just a little bit. But if you feel somewhere in the middle where you're alert and relax, you might try moving to five seconds in and five seconds out with your breath. Staying soft in the muscles of the neck, shoulders and chest. And we'll take a final baseline check now of your mind. So getting a number from one to 10. And then a final baseline of your body, taking a number from one to 10. And you might like just to write that down for yourself to see how this breathing practice worked for you at this time. Uh, maybe even jotting down anything else that you noticed. So you have the recording of one to two breathing that you'll receive that can help as well. And these practices are a great segue into what we'll talk about next, which is regulation. This is our ability to manage our emotional states, but also our physiology. So what you've been doing by changing that baseline is working on re-regulating your nervous system. And we really need a toolkit of many different practices to help with this because maybe the practice that you just tried didn't attune to where you are now. Maybe it did. We can't just use one practice. We need the practice 
that helps to attune to us and regulate with us. And it's a little bit like a parent does to a child. So you actually learn to regulate your emotional states by what you saw your parents do when they were stressed and under pressure. And a lot of people say, oh no, my parents weren't very good at that. But this is something that we can relearn. So your attachment with your parent also determines this. Babies don't have the capacity for self-regulation. They're completely dependent on their early caregivers to do this. So a baby just screams and it needs that soothing. And that is how a baby will develop the areas to do with regulation. Or you might imagine a toddler that goes up to pat a big dog and the dog knocks her over. So she runs to her parent who soothes her and then the parent might take the small girl to back over to the dog and show her how to pat the dog without being knocked over. And so this is what is learning or what we call implicit learning where the little girl builds confidence and knows that she has the capacity to be okay around dogs so she's not scared. We can relearn this regulation because of neuroplasticity. That's what we're learning to do today. We can change the way that the brain calms down our survival brain. We can change the way that we speak to our survival brain through these practices that we're doing. And so when you have a practice or a regulation tool like we're doing today, where we're having several, and you pick the right one that attunes to your nervous system, like a parent would attune to a child's nervous system, we get a regulation response happening. And it might be that you feel a sense of calming in the body. Many of you said you came back towards a five with the contact points. It might be that you feel yourself yawn. You might feel yourself have some little bit of a twitch or a stretch or movement through the body as you discharge some of that stress activation as well. But it can just be that you feel the mind come back towards that state of not being so busy or not being so numb and you feel more present and connected to the moment. And that would be the same felt sense in the body as well. So one of the most important tools that we do regulate our nervous system through is by interoception or interoceptive awareness, which is how we notice sensations. So it can be the bodily sensations that we feel as we change through our nervous system. It can be emotions, hunger, pain, digestion. Some refer to this as our sixth sense or our gut instinct. And the enteric nervous system or the sensations in our belly is one of the loudest. So, you know, you can feel butterflies in your tummy. You can feel sick to your stomach. You can feel that warmth through the belly. And this is also the case with the heart. So we can feel open-hearted. We can feel that warmth in the heart or we can feel broken-hearted. So a lot of emotions are in these areas. And our nervous system is shaped by our past experiences. 
or that what's happened to us previously. And sometimes sensations can arise out of nowhere that are part of a past memory. So if we took the little girl and the dog, she might find years later, she still feels anxious around dogs. And it might not be that in the present moment, there is a threat, but she learned as a child implicitly that dogs were danger. And so each time she sees the dog, her amygdala or that survival brain sets off an alarm. And it doesn't matter if she, even if she tries to think herself out of it, it might still be something that she's scared of. So we can learn to differentiate between an old pattern or something from our past that's setting off alarms and telling us that there's danger and accurate sensations in the present moment that's, that are guiding us because this will help us develop agency and control. So being able to use those sensations in our body to help guide us brings us confidence and wise decisions can come from that. But triggers can feel overwhelming. They can make us reactive. So sometimes we need to regulate the nervous system first and then be able to tune into sensations. But it really helps us to align with our values when we can connect back to the body. And sometimes following trauma, we might dissociate or cut off from the body because that was a coping strategy that we used before to get through times of adversity. On the other hand, we might become hypersensitive to sensations or flooded by sensations. And so with our interoceptive practice, we want to learn to do this in a skillful way. That is that we can pay attention to sensations and not cut off from them or not be swept away by a story that something terrible is going to happen and do our best to stay with what's happening in the present moment. So it's normal for a healthy nervous system to fluctuate up and down through the day. For example, if I look at this point at the top where it says sympathetic, maybe I've received some emails that I need to deal with or I have deadlines. And then later in the day after work, I go for a walk on the beach and settle back down. So it's normal for us to move up and down. And like I said before, we're not trying to always be calm. It's not how our nervous system is wired. But this wonderful picture called the window of tolerance helps us make sense of that stress arousal through the day. And interoception or how we pay attention to these sensations can help us stay with inside what's called the window of tolerance. So the green section there is the window. Now, when I'm inside my window, it doesn't mean that I'm always calm. So I might be find that driving to work, I get annoyed at people and want to tell them to get out of the way. Um, I might find I read some emails that cause me some fear. In the afternoon, I might find that I have a lot of carbohydrates and I'm sleepy. So it's normal inside the window to have those ups and downs. And what we're looking for is that inside our window of tolerance, we're flexible, adaptable, 
Our thoughts are fairly coherent, so we're not jumping all over the place in a panic. Um, we're energized, so we're not flat and dissociated or cut off, but we're also fairly stable. Okay, so even though I can feel all that range of sensations, I'm not in an unstable state. So if, let's say, I got an email from my boss who said, we need to have a meeting. And then before the meeting, I was really anxious because I didn't know what it was about. And let's say I was on the edge of my window of tolerance. So that's this peach zone here. I can use my regulation tools that I use by myself or I can use the co-regulation of somebody else. So I might call my friend in my lunch break and say to him or her, I'm stressed, my boss wants a meeting. And he or she says, ah, it'll be all right. It's probably just about blah, blah, blah. And I find that their soothing voice, their calming way, their joking with me brings me back down inside my window of tolerance. So we can use these tools to help us stay fairly close to being inside. But, you know, sometimes we move up into what's called hyperarousal, where we might feel more anxious, agitated, restless, and there's a sense of not being able to relax or sit still. I might be hypervigilant. And sometimes we might, I might have received some news from my boss that I'm not going to get a position that I wanted. It's gone to somebody else. And I feel really disappointed. Let's say this was disappointment down here, which would be a normal response. But if I'm, if, it, if it may really profoundly affect me, I might move down into hypoarousal where I might feel flat, disconnected, numb. I might feel depressed. Um, so we can move outside of our window of tolerance. What we know that happens following chronic and traumatic stress is that that window or that bandwidth where we feel flexible, adaptive, coherent, energized, and stable, it can become, so let's say driving, which before just made me a bit annoyed, it might move me up into fight or flight and my anger might, might, might make me aggressive and furious. And I'm in fight or flight where I feel a sense of heat and agitation through my shoulders, chest area. I feel my heart pumping, my hands are in fierce, and I might be wanting to yell at other drivers. So it can also mean that when before I go into seeing my boss for that meeting, that my anxiety that was on the edge of my window of tolerance has now moved me into a really stressed state where I have lots of anxiety and my heart's beating fast and my palms are sweating. And then that disappointment before or sadness that takes me down um, into hypoarousal is where we can experience shutdown, depression, that sense of numbness or like I'm disconnected from the present moment and feeling really lethargic. So the window of tolerance gets smaller 
for two reasons mainly. Number one is that the vagal break that helped me calm back down. I'm just going to go back to the previous slide. It would be the vagal break that would take me, say, from here back inside my window. So we know that what happens is the vagal break doesn't work so well. And so these situations where I might have just released that little bit of energy and felt myself get angry before now takes us up into the fight or flight response. And the other reason is when we talked about the survival brain, what we've learned from our past experience can mean that the survival brain becomes more sensitive to thinking that something that's happening is a threat because it's used to being in that state of hypervigilance or protection. So with our practices that we're learning today, we're learning to widen our window of tolerance. And this state and our neurological architecture, so the parts of our brain and our vagus nerve, we can reshape them through the tools and teachings that you learn today. They're powerful and effective resources to help shape the nervous system. And interoception, as I said, that paying attention to sensations in the body can help us come back into our window of tolerance, providing we do it in a skillful way. So that improves the integration between the brain and the body that trauma can interrupt and that expands the window of tolerance. So all of these tools are in the um, masterclass where we use the ball, which you'll get a video on, sensory awareness, meditations in the body and self-compassion practices as well. But the practice that we're going to use now, so with the contact point, we were feeling outside the body. Okay, so if when you're paying attention to sensations that feel overwhelming, it's best to go back to a contact point if you can. What we're going to do with this practice is bring to mind a situation where there was a little bit of stress, so, so light to moderate stress. Now, you don't want to pick something traumatic for this particular exercise because it won't serve you to, to use that. We're just getting to re-engage the vagal break with moderate stress. Too high a stress will, will not work for this. So what we do is we bring to mind that stressful situation and we feel it in the body. So we're getting to know what it feels like when we move into or feel that sympathetic response of our nervous system. And then we're going to use some techniques that help to regulate that. So we're going to use naming sensations. We're also going to work with practices that attune to that place. So attunement is the key. Like a parent would attune to a small child that they care about. You can learn to become a friend to your own distressed self. And this brings regulation. So if you start to feel overwhelmed as you practice, you can feel the sensations at the feet, the contact point, that will help you to re-regulate. But otherwise, if you feel fine, you can stay working in the body, practicing interoception. Remember, you can also take a break 
because you'll have the recording of this practice to revisit afterwards. Okay, so once again, I invite you to come into that posture where you can be alert and relaxed. So sitting in a way where you're comfortable. And once again, you can do this practice with your eyes open or closed. But if you have your eyes open, it might help to just look down and soften the gaze so that your awareness can come to the body. And bringing to mind a situation recently that was mild to moderately stressful for you. So it could be something that happened at work or something with, could be something that you're nervous about that's coming up, but we don't want anything that's over a five out of 10. And just seeing that situation in the movie of your mind. Where you were, who you were with, or maybe seeing that movie of what you think might be going to happen. And then as you bring that to mind, just noticing what's happening through the body. So starting to notice what sensations come up in the body. You might notice in the throat, the chest, the shoulders, the belly, or it might be somewhere else. And just wherever you notice the sensations are the most, you might place a hand there just so you can stay in touch with those sensations, beginning to attune to the sensations. And then you might mentally whisper what sensations you notice. So it could be tension, tension, heat, heat, numbness, pulling, aching. Just see if you can allow the sensations to be there as though you're attending to them like a friend and just very quietly whispering what's here. So even though they may feel unpleasant, noticing what happens as you allow them just to be as they are and you mentally whisper what sensations you notice. 
And just like you would ask somebody that you cared about, a friend or a small child, see if you could ask the sensations, how do you want me to be with you? Or you might ask, what is it that you need? Just see if you get a feeling of what the sensations might need. So it might be care, safety, presence, kindness. And you might just place that hand onto that area and imagine that you could give warmth or care or whatever this place is asking for through the touch of your hand. Just noticing what happens as you attune to this place and you befriend it. So you attend and befriend your nervous system. There might be words that you could offer to this place. It could be, it's okay. I'm here. I care. You're safe. And noticing what happens if you find the words that are tuned to these sensations. bringing a kind and caring attention to the sensations that you notice. And just now checking in with what you found attuned the most for you. So was it the feeling that you gave of care with your hand to this place? Was it the words? Was it allowing the sensations to be as they are? Was it naming sensations? So we use several different practices there in one technique that can really help to re-regulate the nervous system. And the vagus nerve has also been called the conduit of compassion or the compassion nerve because the compassion from somebody else can be one of the things that helps to bring us into a state of regulation, but also when we attune and bring compassion to our own nervous system, we can do this too, thanks to the vagus nerve. So that practice really engages the vagus nerve 
um, especially that bringing of care. But also what we did was we helped to bring that part of the brain called the medial prefrontal cortex back into action. So what happens is if we look at the brain, if you imagine that this is all the information from the body coming up to the brainstem, so that base of the brain where the vagus nerve is. Now, it communicates with the survival brain, especially the amygdala. So when we're stressed, we get a lot of activity in that area. That's what we, we just brought to mind something that was stressful. When we engage that medial prefrontal cortex by naming the sensations, it down-regulates and calms down the amygdala. So we strengthen the connection between that, those two areas. It's shown that after trauma, that connection can be interrupted. So when we feel stressed, we might flip our lid because we don't have that calming effect from the medial prefrontal cortex saying it's okay. We lose the bigger picture and we get swept away by our emotions. So that's a really wonderful practice to use if you can do it where you notice sensations and bring compassion without getting swept away. Remember that if you do start to feel that the sensations are too much, that it's good to go back to the contact points and then in time build back up to um, using more of the interoceptive practices. When we talk about exteroception as opposed to interoception, so interoception is inside, exteroception is outside. That's what we see, hear, taste, smell and touch, how that can all affect our nervous system. So safety isn't cognitive. It's not necessarily logical. So something from many years ago can trigger some people. It could be, for instance, somebody who's been in the Vietnam War, they might hear a door slam and immediately go into a position of holding their rifle because a loud noise they've implicitly learnt meant danger. And exteroception or our systems paying attention change depending on the state of our nervous system. For example, if I'm in a regulated state, the muscles of my middle ear will contract so that I hear the sound of human voice. I'm primed for connection. But if I detect danger or if my survival brain detects danger, the muscles of my middle ear will change so that I hear low frequency sounds, which are predator sounds. It's like hearing a stick snap in a forest because our evolution has come from the days where we were running away from lions and tigers and all sorts of things. And from those millions of years of evolution, we still have a nervous system that's wired like that. When we talk about neuroception, this is the process about, of how we distinguish whether situations or people are safe, dangerous or life-threatening. So both interoception and exteroception, they inform neuroception. 
Now, neuroception happens outside the level of conscious awareness, meaning we move into different states of our nervous system, not by choice, not by thinking, not because we're too sensitive, we're too needy, we're not strong enough. It's all through what we've learned through our experiences in the past. So we store information about experiences that were the most emotionally charged for us preferentially. And that's the information that we'll recall most preferentially. So if we had strong fear about something in the past, our survival brain's way of learning, because it's prioritizing keeping us safe, is to store that information so that in the future, if something feels the same, even though it might not be, if it feels similar, it will do its best to keep us safe. So when we look at the different states of our nervous system, now we've looked at the window of tolerance so far, but we can also look at this in terms of looking at traffic lights. So if we start off with the green zone or the green state, this would be similar to being inside my window of tolerance. And we can call, also call this our ventral vagal state, our, which is the state where we feel more safe, relaxed, connected. We could also feel a sense of ease and flow, but it's very easy to connect with other people and we feel connected to ourselves. The social engagement system is working here. So that's the system that is to do with what we see, what we hear, and how we communicate with other people. Now, I've already mentioned that when we're in that calm state, our social engagement system primes the middle ear muscles so that we detect the sound of human voice. It's priming us for intimacy and connection. And it affects the voice. So maybe we think of someone as being calm who's got a very whispery, soft voice. But what actually shows that somebody is regulated is that their voice will have a lot of vocal prosody, which means it will have the ups and the downs. And parents do this with babies intuitively to regulate their nervous system. So you might hear them sing songy voicing with their baby like that. And that's giving that wide prosody, which helps a baby feel regulated. And the other thing that you'll notice for somebody who's in this state is that they'll have expression around their eyes. So they'll be smiling around the eyes as well. And that's to do with the way the vagus nerve connects to cranial nerves that innovate the muscles in our face and also our voice, as we just said, and the ear. Now, in this state, my immune Um, in my systems, but also fight off infections or colds. And then also we'll notice in this state that the hormonal system is in, a, in an optimal state as well. Now, if I face a stress and move into the next state, the yellow state, this is known as my immobilization, sorry, my mobilization system. So my energy becomes mobilized and that is for fight or flight. 
So we might feel that surge of energy that's saying, oh, I can't relax. I can't sit still. I need to do something. And we move into more self-protection. So the muscles of the middle ear change so that rather than detecting the sound of human voice, we hear those low frequency sounds, as I said, predator sounds. We lose the prosody of the voice. So the voice may become more monotone like this if someone's angry or if they're anxious, we might hear them talk and they're breathing every couple of words and it's much higher and it's at that same monotone space. And the face may look more flat. So somebody might smile with their lower face, but the eyes aren't really smiling if there's that sense of immobilization. Now, if the yellow state doesn't help us deal with the challenge, we then fall back onto our most primitive state, which is known as the immobilization state, the dorsal vagal state. And this is where we can have fainting or freezing. So in this, in this state, it's actually very difficult for us to take action. It's almost impossible to communicate. It can be very difficult to get out of the situation. This is our physiological way of our nervous system trying to protect us. You might see that reptiles do it, they freeze. Or say a possum that's being chased by a dog, it will freeze and we say it's playing dead. But this is this state of the nervous system doing this. So the communication's lost, the moving's lost, we also have changes to our immune system if we're spending a long period of time here and endocrine system too. And that's the same with the yellow. So when people say about somebody who was in a situation that was very traumatic, why didn't they just leave? Because if somebody's spending a lot of time in that red state, it's very difficult to physiologically, it's making it very, very hard to do that. And so this gives us a new way of looking at the effects of what trauma can do to us. Now, we can also have blended states. So let's take out the pen. If I was to blend the yellow and the green state together, this would be the biological correlate of play. So being playful, having fun, dancing, sport, um, just having fun with my friends and being playful. So I have mostly that activation of the green state, but I also have a combination of the yellow. So I feel the mobilization of my energy. And that's a wonderful state for us to move into to practice using our vagal break. So play is something I invite you to explore. Now, we can also have the combination of the red with the green and this would be deep stillness so if i was in a really deep meditation if i was really relaxed in say a yin
I would call I'm not sure what happened there, but it's back on to the Wi-Fi. Just making sure you can all hear me correctly. Can hear you now. Thank you. Oh, that certainly made my uh, vagal break release and my heart rate go up. <laughs> I'm sorry, guys. I'm not sure what happened there. Phew. Okay, let's go back to where we were. So... Here we are, back to sharing our screen. So the red and the yellow combining, we look at as what's called tonic immobility. So I can have this feeling of being frozen where I'm stuck and I have lots of um, fight or flight together. So that can happen with, that, that would be like at the essence of dysregulation, we often can see that. But what we look at for all of these blended states, so we want to have the ability to move into play. We want to have the ability to move into deep stillness. But if we are moving into that tonic immobility, which was the combination of the red and the yellow, and we're spending a lot of time there, it means because of trauma, we have lost access to that green state. And this can have a profound effect on our whole mind-body system. So the key to changing this is to being able to this green state again, to add it back in so we're not spending time in tonic immobility. So the next practice is designed for that. And it's where we bring in more green and we can do this by a few things. So you might think about now just sitting here. Is there anywhere in my body that I can feel that's like an island of safety? So maybe there's a place in your body that you can feel that feels neutral. It might be your big toe or the foot, feeling the sensations inside there. It might be the hands, feeling the sensations inside the hands. So that's a way that we can learn to do that. And if we look at where the sympathetic nervous system is, if we place one hand at the back of the neck with the fingers pointing down and one at the back of our waist, the lower back, the sympathetic nervous system is between there. So we could feel sensations all the way through that area. And often we feel the heat and the tension. The dorsal vagal branch of the vagus nerve that takes us down into freeze or shutdown is more in, around the belly. So it's good to bring back that green state if we can take our energy into the hands or our awareness into the hands and feet and find an island that feels neutral or safe. And I'd say away from the center of the body if we're feeling stressed there. And then the other thing we can do is use resources where we can imagine a person where we feel that sense of safety and connection, or we can imagine a place where we feel that deep sense of safety and connection. 
So let's try this practice where you first of all tune into a place in the body that feels neutral. So it's not danger. It doesn't feel like there's danger or that you're overwhelmed by sensations or that feels a sense of safety, connection, and, and feeling sensations in this area is, is pleasant. So as I said, it could be the feet, could be feeling sensations inside the hand. And just noticing that tingling and vibrating and pulsing in that area. using this for an anchor for your attention for a moment. And then just seeing if you can bring to mind a person who brings a deep sense of trust and connection or bring to mind a place where you feel connected, you feel safe, you feel nurtured being there. So it could be the beach or somewhere in nature. And it doesn't need to be the perfect one because you've got the recording to practice this with again, but just choose one for now. And then as you bring this person or this place to mind, just take in what it is you appreciate about it. Take in what it is that you love about it. Just allowing yourself to savour this experience. And then pay attention to the feelings that it brings up in your body. So noticing the sensations, noticing the emotions, and then just see if you can let that expand as though it can really fill you up. See if this goodness, this ease, this feeling of trust, if you could sense that it's registering deeply in your emotional memory. And if you find it hard to feel sensations, of goodness, remember you can go back to feeling that island of safety. But otherwise, let's do another round of bringing to mind the person or the place. Just taking in what it is that you love about them, the place. And savouring that. So paying attention to the feelings that it brings up in your body. 
Noticing the sensations. Noticing the emotions. Just allowing that to expand. Seeing if that sense of goodness, the trust, the connection could register deeply in your emotional memory. And so that practice is a wonderful way for us to really bring back that ventral vagal or the part of the vagus nerve that connects us to the green state. And as we practice, what's been shown is that these states that we cultivate can become our traits. So if we've had a past where we've laid down a lot of implicit memories of danger where things weren't safe, this is like tipping the scales so we can balance things out a little bit more as it lays down the implicit memory of goodness and inner security rather than that danger. And when we savor experiences that are good, it helps us stay in that green state. And that's been associated with regulating emotions. But when you pay attention to those physical sensations and focus on that ventral vagal experience and the social engagement system, it can help to maintain a positive mood well after actually practicing. So we've spoken about the autonomic nervous system, which we talk about being made up of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic branches. So the sympathetic is the accelerator. And we used to just look at the parasympathetic as a break. But what we know now is that the parasympathetic branch has two parts. So this is what polyvagal theory gets its name from. So we have the dorsal branch of the vagus nerve that can take us into the red state. And we also have the ventral branch of the vagus nerve that can take us into that green state. So this is what we're learning to do and learning about today, the, the two different branches. Now, the ventral part of the vagus nerve more connects with the heart and up into the chest area and the face, okay? So it's this upper part here. And it's myelinated, so it's wrapped in an insulation, which means it functions fast and accurately. So it's sometimes called the smart vagus. We've spoken about the social engagement system, so it helps us to relate. We've spoken about how it changes our speech and our vo vocal prosody. It's also that vagal break that can slow our physiology down. So when we learn to use it, we're regulating our nervous system. It supports the perception of safety and it provides the neurophysiological requirements for resilience and health regulation. So when we come back into that green state of the traffic light, what happens is that we have more regulation of our organs, so our gut, our heart, our other systems like our immune system and our endocrine system. So with chronic health issues, 
this is how we can improve them if we spend more time in that green state. Now, the dorsal vagal state has been called the dumb vagus because it's not wrapped in that myelination. It's older and more primitive. And so it acts more slowly and with less accuracy. So sometimes it can take us down into that shutdown state, even if we're not in danger. And we feel that sense where we can actually move into fainting or maybe we just feel that sense of disconnection or feel vague or like we're separate. We may feel very flat and fatigued. So sometimes we can have a period that's really stressful for us, like say a big fight with somebody that we love, and then we might drop down into that dorsal vagal state and crash days after. So we might find that we get sick or come down with a migraine or we're in bed. And the key, and I think we've talked about this quite a lot already, is that the health, a healthy nervous system isn't always calm. We want to have balance there. We want to be able to have the energy of our sympathetic nervous system for play, to be focused, to be on. So that would be the red and the yellow state we talked about. We want to be able to set boundaries with people or take action when we need to. And then we want to be able to put the brakes back on and slow down to the appropriate speed for the conditions we're in um, and the road that we're on once that time is over. But sometimes when we have poor functioning of the vagus nerve, it means it takes us a long time for our nervous system to return to the appropriate speed, or maybe we don't find it at all. And the nervous system can get stuck on on where we're in overdrive, we have anxiety, anger, irritation, we can have inflammation, insomnia, gut issues, and aches and pains, or we can get stuck on off. So this would be below the window of tolerance. The other one would be above where we feel flat, exhausted, shut down, lose motivation. And for some people, they may even move into a faint response. But the vagus nerve keeps out nervous system functioning at its best. So we have a healthy vagal break with high vagal tone and we're in a regulated state. As we said, the sympathetic and the ventral gives us enthusiasm, vitality for play and for passion. And we don't want to stop our fight flight response. This can save our life if we use it when we've got demanding situations. And then we talked about the dorsal vagal state and the ventral brings that deep stillness, rest, introspective, introspective time and breastfeeding. And this can be where we really get a lot of recovery and rejuvenation. So when we're stuck on on or in that overdrive or hyper arousal, we might notice tight muscles in the neck and shoulders, tension in the legs tightness in the arms, the eyes can get a lot of tension because we're on the lookout for danger, insomnia, the feeling of fear, anxiety, anger, irritation or panic. And our gut gets knotted because motility or movement of food through the gut stops. We can also have chronic inflammation because we don't come back into the phase where we let rest and digest happen. And with dorsal or too much activity or time spent with the stuck on off, 
as we said before, we might faint, feel helpless and depressed, lack motivation, lack energy and vitality, chronic fatigue, and our gut has too much motility. So in this state, we might suffer from that diarrhea or IBS type symptoms. But it's the chronic states of not coming back to the green state where we get illness because that's where repair, rejuvenation and rest happen and all our systems function at their best. And if we look at those 20% of the fibers coming down of the vagus nerve, they're regulating our heart, they're regulating our organs. So if we're not coming into the state where the vagus nerve can function well, we don't get that regulation and that's what can lead to illness. Now, the final part of today, I've already reached the time that we're supposed to be finishing, but I get so excited talking about this that I tend to go over time. So I apologize if you need to leave and you will receive the recording within 24 hours. But for those of you who want to hang around, we've just got another part and then we're into our Q&A time. So the vagus nerve largely serves the gastrointestinal system. So that's within the wall of our digestive tract, an enormous plexus of nerves. And it's sometimes been referred to as the enteric brain. But if you put it together, it's the size of a cat's brain. And it's our oldest brain. And it produces many of the hormones, including serotonin. Now, We've said how 80% of the vagus nerve connects our gut to our brain. So lots of information is coming up, but not as much as coming down. So those feelings are really important. And there's been studies that show that people who can use that interoceptive information to make decisions, make better decisions. So it was shown in finance with people who needed to make quick decisions that could have been really stressful. I was shown that those who did it instinctively um, and tuning into their gut instinct were more successful. So it, they influence our entire brain and we make decisions based on these feelings. So the practice that I want to use is what we call VU. Now, sometimes it can be hard to feel sensations inside the gut or if we have a lot of gut disorders, we might not feel sensations there. But also if we have had chronic pain in our gut, we might actually feel overwhelmed or be scared of sensations there. So the practice of VU helps us to engage the vagus nerve, the fibers in the belly, and work on that mind-body connection between the gut and the brain. And the noise of VU is a very low noise. And if you were to imagine a really big boat or a ship returning home on a cloudy bay and it's sounding its horn, the noise might sound something like So as I do that, I can feel vibrations in my belly. I can also feel a bit in the chest and the throat and that's okay, but I'm bringing my awareness to feel the vibrations down in the belly. So if you want to try this one too, feel free to join in. We start out by taking a nice deep breath in. 
attention to the sensations in the belly. Let's try again. So if you find it challenging to connect to your belly, you might just try placing your hands on the lower belly just to keep you connected there and see if you can imagine the noise coming down nice and low from there. We'll try again. Breath in. And again. gurgling in the belly that's okay deep breath in and now just tuning into those sensations inside the belly and as you do this and you're sending positive sensations up to the brain and the brain is detecting, ah, things are good down in the belly, you're actually helping to regulate the 20% of the fibers that come down and influence the gut. This can help to regulate the gut microbiome. It can help to help improve the movement of food through the belly. So if you suffer from chronic constipation or diarrhea or IBS, this can really help. And it can help you feel more, more tethered to the world. So the, the organs are a portal to feeling connected in the present moment. Now, there's also a technique in your tutorial where you can do this technique with a ball. Um, if you have pain, you might want to practice using this with your hand first or just doing the ball in standing. But the ball can be a wonderful way to increase vagal tone. So deep abdominal pressure will retune the nervous system for days afterwards. So this is a wonderful practice for you to use. The alternative is you can use pressure laying on a blanket if you find the um, ball uncomfortable, but you'll receive that full tutorial in your video as well. So just to come back to this, putting it all together. Now, as I said, it's not about just picking one practice. It's picking what attunes to you. So when you're in the state of sympathetic or in hyperarousal, bit of fight or flight, the practices that help the best are the sympathetic contact points, one-to-one one or one-to-two, name it to tame it. If you've moved into dorsal or shutdown, the practices that can work really well here are the dorsal contact points, one-to-one one breathing, and you could try standing up, the practices of VU, and that feeling of cultivating the felt sense of safety. So, if you think, oh, I have this wrong with me, it's best to think about, okay, well, what 
state do you spend the most time in? And then use these practices. And the key is attunement, like I said. So let's say the difference between a practice that attunes or doesn't attune, it's like a person who you tell how sad and what a challenging time that you're having and that you're, you know, really been going through some hard stuff and they say, oh, you'll be right. Come on, let's go. There's no attunement there. It feels, it doesn't bring you any peace or it doesn't make you feel any better. Now, if you tell somebody the same thing and they can say, I'm sorry for your hard time. I really see that you're struggling with this. What can I do to support you? And you feel that attunement, that alone can be enough to make you feel better. So you've got to find the practice that attunes to you. Now, some of you want to join the six-week program, which is great. We would love to have you join in. It starts on August the 2nd and the bookings open on Friday. So how it works is that a new module goes into the members area that's around about 60 minutes in length. Now you work through that at your own pace and then later in the week we have a live call that's 60 minutes and we practice the techniques together and it's also the time where I answer your questions. Um, each person who completes the program joins our alumni. So we have catch-up calls following on so that you get the chance to integrate the practices and then come back and practice together and ask questions. We have scholarship positions available. So they're available for two weeks um, if you would like to apply. And you do get a discount for what you've paid for today's masterclass off that because doing this masterclass is a prerequisite to the program. And we'll send that discount code out to you when we send the resources. Okay, so we have Q&A time. Just to point out, I can't give you any medical advice, I'm sorry, but please feel free to ask questions about the content of what you've learned and we can um, see what we can do. Uh -huh, da -da -da -da. Okay, so there's a question about having lower back pain to do with the bowel movement, so a gastrointestinal specialist last week has to do with the vagus nerve going into overdrive. So to relieve yourself, the question is to ask what state you're going into. Um, if there's more panic, it could be sympathetic. So it would help you to use something like the contact points practice. But I showed that picture before with all the sympathetic practices. So have a try of that. Uh, what do we got? More questions over here. Da -da -da -da. Vu through the noise, nose or the mouth. Vu is out of the mouth, breathing in through the nose. How does pressing into the contact points upregulate the nervous system? Good question. So often in when we're in that down-regulated state, we are dissociated from the body. So the pushing actually increases the activity that's sent up to the sensory part of the brain. So that brings an upregulation to the system. Is there any research regarding the possible connection between the vagus and food intolerances? Good question. So what we see following chronic or traumatic stress is there can be a change to the gut microbiome. In a very simplistic way, the good bacteria 
decrease and the bad bacteria increase. And that has a change to the vagus nerve. So it can make us more prone to sensitivities when that happens. There can also be a histamine response. So the immune system is activated and that can lead to sensitivities. So yes, it can be related to that. If you are in a situation you can't get out of and you're in freeze, will these techniques help you take action to get out of it? Yes. So if you can upregulate your system, if you're in freeze, so down in hypoarousal, that can be really good. And that might be the contact points practice. Can you be in sympathetic and calm at the same time? Can they be located in different places in the body? Um, so you could be in the state of play with the combination of the green and the yellow, um, which would be a different state than the green and the sympathetic. So people who are in the sympathetic will certainly feel the sensation of a more racing heart, their thoughts will speed up and they will feel a sense of mobilization. So probably can't be in the same. Um, Oh, really good question. With nearly every practical done, a lot of yawning would start. You mentioned releasing stress. Did I hear this correctly? Yes, you did. So that yawning can be a sign that you've completed the stress response or you're discharging the stress activation. Very normal and you don't need to worry about focusing on it. You can actually sometimes feel that sense of ah, afterwards and then you could stop the practice. Um, are you able to suggest body work that can help the vagus nerve? Um, so some people find that by using massage, whether that's through a massage ball or like I showed you with the massage to the belly, there's more connection to the body. And yes, you could certainly use massage or craniosacral, but things that you can do yourself in the heat of the moment are going to prove more useful. So you could say have a once a week massage, but my suggestion would be is to do quick practices that you can use for in the heat of the moment. So yes, that, that's a really good way. Peter Levine uses VU for hypo and hyperregulation. You can because the VU is also a form of one-to-one -one breathing. So it can work both ways. I found myself dealing with hypo arousal, but in the breathing exercises, as I stood up, my mind definitely went to hyper arousal. There was a bouncing between hypo and hyper. It feels like it can change minute to minute at times. Yes, it can. If there's a lot of dysregulation, that may be the, the case. And then you may have to find that you come back down into sitting, help the mind come back to that state of feeling okay, and then try it again. Um, what can, I'm not sure what that question is. If my mind is always high, do I want more at the contact points or less? Um, so it depends on your body, Suzanne. So if your mind is racing, just go to what, tune into what the body is. So if the body's racing too, then you want to bring that down. But if the body's flat, you want to bring up. So add energy to the contact points. You mentioned we can tell the difference if the trigger is old or current. If in red and you can't think straight, how do you determine this? You don't worry about thinking in that state. You use the practice that's going to bring you back to regulation. Um, it, it doesn't matter if it's old or new. The nervous system has detected that as danger. And so that's why that's happening. Um, where are we? 
Is it a good idea to block the noise while practicing exercises? I think it's best if you can just come into the practice of tuning into sensations or whatever it is in the body rather than worrying too much about thoughts. So let them come, let them go. Um, if you damage the vagus nerve at the base of the skull, well, I, I couldn't answer that question. It's too much of a medical question. Um, you would, I would be trying to use whatever practices you could, but if the vagus is damaged, it would depend on where it would depend on how much. Um, yes. So there's the question. I feel that I'm frequently in freeze and simultaneously hyper aroused. So in that case, go with what the body's scale is. So just ignore the mind. If the body is low, then you want to upregulate. If it's high, you want to downregulate. Uh, so the question is about SIBO. So if you're looking at the gut, SIBO can normally be, so that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So if the motility or the movement of food through the, the digestive system has slowed down, that's more to do with um, the sympathetic state. So I would look at the practices that would be in the sympathetic state. If you make yourself yawn, will that discharge help discharge? Mm, maybe. Um, look, it can be really hard to do that when you're in a sympathetic state and the breath is short and shallow. But in this case, using a yawn, if you can bring it in, is the same as taking a deep breath. So that could help, but it might be short-lived. You'd probably be better using one-to-one -one or one-to-two breathing. Okay, guys, I'm going to say we've got a lot of questions to go. So I'm not going to take any more. So please don't type any more into the chat box. I've still got 23 to go. I'm just going to cap it there. Um, can we use energizing breath for hypoarousal? Yes, you can. So sometimes breathing with a shorter, sharper breath, the breath of fire, as you say, is that can really help to bring up the breath. But standing, I would try first. So work with one-to-one -one and then try standing up and that will upregulate the system. Um, can I ask if the effects of practices that we just learned are accumulative over time? Yes, it does. So what's been shown with things like the breathing practices is that it's around one month to see an improvement in that heart rate variability and the ability to feel regulated consistently by that. So as you practice and each time that you come into that state and show the nervous system that it can be expressed in feeling a resilient regulated state, that's going to build over time. Absolutely. And that's the same with the connection between the medial free prefrontal cortex and the amygdala as well. So you're going to strengthen that connection and we'd be looking around six weeks for that. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. Um, so in a situation where the brain is inflamed due to something like mold, CFS or Lyme, what might be the best calming for calming the system? You need to look at what state you're moving into and then using the practices. So go back to have a look at the state you're in first and then what practices work. How do I feel about vagus nerve stimulating devices or TENS on the ear? 
I have used transcutaneous vagus nerve stimulation with patients before, um, and it can work well if it's done correctly. I prefer to use the practices that help people come back inside their window of tolerance in the heat of the moment because that's actively strengthening the vagal break and it's working on those neural connections. So the transcutaneous devices have been shown to be helpful for certain persistent conditions, but it doesn't mean that it's going to work for all types of dysregulation. These practices are a more um, a safer bet and you've got a lot more tools to use. Vagus nerve and middle ear muscles had not heard of this connection, um, possibly cause of unknown level of deafness. Again, I couldn't really answer that. It's a medical question. Um, so yeah, that's a, um, a one. I'm, but, but yes, there is the link to the ear. Um, yes, you can also look at the ladder as well if you like that. Um, now, you don't have to come out of the freeze all the time through fight or flight, but basically what we're looking at is, okay, so we use the traffic light where it was green to yellow to red. So to come out of the red, you might find if it's not, if it's only that you feel slightly disconnected, you feel maybe a sense of shame because we know that at maps to dorsal, you may be able to come straight back into the ventral vagal state. But for some people, that's more with tonic immobility where the combination of the dorsal and the sympathetic, they do need to go through the sympathetic. So you would come out of the dorsal vagal state, you would then discharge the sympathetic state and then to ventral. So it depends on how that was showing up. Whenever my vagus nerve gets triggered, my nasal passages flare up and I get painful sinus headaches. I'm, I can't answer that question as well. It's a medical question. Are there physical sensations other than anxiety, inability to keep, to keep still that can act as clue that the vagus nerve is in overdrive? So again, yep, it would be both those things that we looked at for hyper and hypo arousal. But yes, tension in the base of the skull can be um, very, in, like, very much a sign of that tension from the sympathetic. You're welcome. Um, Yes, so talking about the states, if we have the um, tonic immobility, then what you want to do is go back to looking at just the description of the um, body and picking that one. But if the scale of 1 to 10 doesn't work for you, then you can use the window of tolerance, you can use the traffic light system, and you can say, where am I and what practices work for me? So you've got several ways to look at your nervous system that will help you there. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. We did it. We got through all the questions and we only went over by 24 minutes. I'm sorry guys that I went for so long, but thank you so much for staying around for almost two and a half hours. I love your enthusiasm. I love all your questions and I really appreciate you being here for all of this time because it was a lot of material, but I absolutely love sharing these questions. Um, and 
as I said, there'll be information coming out that helps you to deal with like putting this all together. You've got the video, you've got the audio, and um, you'll also have some information on the six-week program for those of you who want to come along for that. It's been a wonderful, wonderful time to learn with you. I appreciate it. And please stay in touch on social media. I love hearing from you over there. Take care.